Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and our guest today is author, lawyer, and altruistic leader, Alan Lux. In the 1980s, Alan was the executive director of the Alcoholism Council of Greater New York, and he spearheaded the legal battle to require warnings on the detrimental effects of drinking alcohol during pregnancy. Alan wrote, Revolution in the Blood, Will America Sober Up? You Are What You Drink, and he edited, Having Been There, The Personal Drama of Alcoholism. Alan Lux served for 18 years as executive director of Big Brothers Big Sisters of New York City. He wrote The Healing Power of Doing Good, The Health and Spiritual Benefits of Helping Others, and coined the popular term Helpers High. Mr. Lux has been interviewed on Good Morning America and The Today Show. With all respect, I bring you Alan Lux. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Your early work centered around the subject of addiction to alcohol and the serious challenges of addiction. What led to your early relationship to this work? And as you see it, what's the spiritual nature of people's effectively dealing with alcohol and other addictions? I got involved in a very non-spiritual way. I was working for a research organization, RAND, and uh, the then mayor of New York City, John Lindsay, brought us in to look at a number of urban problems. And one of them was the problem of alcohol and drugs. And what was the urban impact? The impact on crime, the impact on welfare, on hospital beds, on uh, family abuse, etc. And I knew nothing about uh, really alcohol and drug abuse. And I got, became intrigued by these figures. So sometimes 50% of hospital beds were being occupied by uh, some relationship to uh, alcohol and other drug addictions. And so we set up for New York City the Office of uh, Alcoholism and Drug Abuse. And I had met the executive director at that time of the National Council on Alcoholism. They passed away. The board asked me to come on. So I came on to run the program really as an urban specialist. And then, but the spiritual part came on quickly when I learned about AA, began to go to what they call AA open meetings, which are open to everybody, including non-alcoholics, and especially the 12th step. And the 12th step says, uh, and it's recovery from an addiction. This, this, you know, you've been addicted. Your whole body, your mind has been uh, dependent upon the substance to function. And the AA has the 12 steps you need to go through to lick it. And the 12th step is you've got to help someone else. And to me, that, that was fascinating. Why, why was it helping someone else going to help you stop needing... Um, to abuse alcohol and other drugs. And so that spiritual side gradually took on uh, more and more of my thinking. And I'd always been a volunteer until to the end, that 12-step going forward now, many, many years later, uh, has always been a critical part of my thinking of how, how important it is to help someone else in order to maintain our own personal health. Well, let's, let's get deeper into this. I'd like to spend some time talking about the book you wrote on this subject, The Healing Power of Doing Good, The Health and Spiritual Benefits of Helping Others. 
Wherein lies doing good's power to heal? What is our understanding now of how the whole thing works? You have so much research and data in your book to back up this understanding, and I would love to have you share some of that with our listeners. Well, the important thing is that it's not just me. I mean, I did the original research on it in 1992. It's a while ago. Mm -hmm. But in 2007, the federal government itself came out with a report called the Health Benefits of Volunteering, issued by the Corporation for National and Community Service. So the federal government has has also collected over, it's over 30 studies now, which have found that people who help others, but they're helping you have to have personal contact, and you have to do it same as exercise on a re- repeated way, have better health, uh, live longer. So it's not just me; it's the federal government itself has collected the studies. But why it works is um, primarily that we know a majority of um, medical uh, visits relate in some way to stress. Stress relates, uh, stress raises your blood pressure, uh, raises your blood sugar, makes you just feel lousy, mm-hmm. uh, re- re- relates to the use and abuse of nicotine and alcohol and other drugs. Um, so, supposedly 60% of all medical office visits are in fact triggered somehow by from feeling bad to uh, having high blood pressure, abusing uh, these drugs, etc., where they have a stress link. And so what the research has found is that people who help others, but they have, they're helping them personally. That's the important point. And so they're focusing not on themselves, but the person they're being helped. They're helping. And they're doing it repeatedly for months, for a year. They're cutting off the messages of stress, the messages of stress maybe from their family, from their job, from their neighborhood, whatever they are, and those stress impulses which have negative impacts on the body aren't there. And so it's similar really to meditation, similar to the relaxation techniques which are taught in major hospitals um, in that the uh, focusing on another person, having more stress, begin to bring you the benefits of relaxation and uh, and the reversal of stress's negative impacts on the body. What do you think is the underlying tension in the first place that people need to relax, whether it's via drugs and alcohol or other substances or other self-destructive behaviors or by the more life-enhancing modes of exercise and, and eating right, spiritual practice, or or volunteering, you know, the personal contact type of volunteering that, that you've been advocating? Well, we all want to feel good about ourselves. And the definition of good health isn't the absence of illness, but it's feeling good. You may not have, you may not have an illness, but you can still feel uh, poorly about yourself. You still can feel lousy. You still can have an emotional low. And we found in our studies that people who helped others, again, by having personal contact with those they helped and continuing for a long period of time, and doing it often, or the often was almost two hours a week. And, in fact, the federal government's uh, review of all the studies found that the, those volunteers who gained better health from helping others were doing it on an average of about 
100 hours a year. That's a considerable amount of time, an average of about two hours a week. But uh, they also were 10 times more likely to say they were in good health. So, again, the ethos of it is that uh, the, our, our bodies were, you know, were, were born with, we're born with this ability to deal with stress, with the sudden, you know, the lion jumps out of us at the jungle, or so sudden something suddenly happens, and stress hits us, and our adrenaline system works, and it lets us run away. And that's, that's normal, and that's nothing, doesn't have an impact on the body. What the body doesn't expect to have is to be continually under stress, and that becomes a negative stress. That becomes the bad stress, and that becomes stress has so many, many sources, and for each of us it's different. But when stress hits, the basic definition of stress is that you, you, you lost control. You don't have good control over the situation. Now you begin to feel bad, and you, uh, you're likely to see a doctor, but also you want to somehow get rid of this bad feeling. And you can do it by eating fatty foods to, uh, to, doing, uh, to, to abusing alcohol or cigarettes, or doing a whole host of things uh, to, which will hurt your body. So the easiest, therefore, of helping others is that when we help, we, we do away with the stress. And most scientists believe that it's natural in that we are programmed, we should be programmed anyway, to want to help others. Because in the old story, if the cavemen didn't help each other, the fire would have gone out in front of the cave. So it makes sense that we feel good when we help others. It makes sense that we have better health. In my work, my research, I coined a term which is now used regularly in the literature called the help aside. That people who actually help others, focus on others, usually it's one-on-one -on -one helping or one volunteer to just a very small number of people who actually feel a physical high in the same way they feel a physical high if they would exercise. Mm -hmm. So what I hear you saying is that part of the way it works is that it takes the focus off the self. I'm just remembering that in your book you talk about empathy quite a bit. And it seems to me that this focus off the self and on the other person develops one's empathy. It's like a training in empathy for the helper. Would you say that that experience of empathy is part of the healing? Sure, empathy is part of it. I mean, many, many people do it through meditation, which doesn't really involve a human connection, but you think about your breath going in, in, into you and out of you. You're thinking about uh, some kind of calming uh, feeling you're thinking about, your mantra. But again, it's the whole idea of meditation is to cut off the cut off the outside world, just focusing on this neutral or spiritual, if you want to say that, mechanism, and you're cutting off stress. And there are in hospitals, many hospitals, they have uh, video games in the pediatric area with children who are unfortunately under pain will play the games. And while they're playing the games, focusing out of themselves or away from themselves, they need less painkillers. <laughs> so we know that if we can focus out of ourselves, not focus on our own problems, but connect with something else, and here helping, connecting with another human being, we feel better. The challenge, of course, is to get many, many more people to do it. Mm-hmm. That brings me to something else I'd like to ask you about. You've had actually a great 
deal of personal contact with the urban poor through your 20 years of work as the leader, the executive director of Big Brothers and Big Sisters of New York, working with that level of society and trying to make life better for the urban poor. What's your view of American society as a whole vis-a-vis this work and the leaders you've been in touch with who are, who are trying to help, do you feel that the power of doing good can really uh, attract the people who have great sums of money and lots of political power to do good? Can love and empathy and power be brought together? Well, we have, um, well, I'm going to tell you a story about an average person, and we'll see if it, if it relates to a very wealthy, powerful person. I was, after law school, I went into the Peace Corps, and after I returned from the Peace Corps, I practiced law in a storefront in East Harlem, a very, very poor area. And it was Christmas time, and we were in a backyard by some florist, and I don't remember who had donated a pine tree. We were planting it, and there was a tough area and a dirty area. They used to have what they call airmail garbage. A lot of the people in the building uh, would throw their garbage out the window, so the backyard was dirty. We were finally convincing the people to clean it all up. And uh, at the end, it thought the snow, we had the pine tree planted. We had snow on our shoulders and our hats. And we, were, we really felt something, that, that, that something actually that you get from uh, connecting with each other. And they then uh, wanted to give me a gift, the people, and they brought out what they thought was an attaché case. It was an old Samsonite uh, case, but it was probably a, a, a six-suiter. It was a, the biggest case that you've ever seen in your life. People didn't know. And I had a friend there, and he was a, an attorney for a movie company that contractual rights for leasing movies in Latin America. And he saw all this, witnessed all this, and after we left, he said, my life, this is a very true story, he says, my life has changed, and I'm not going back uh to become a lawyer to lease movies. And he quit his job within weeks after that, and he became a guidance counselor in the New York City public school system. So the power of, of connecting, of having empathy, is, is tremendous. It, it, it changed this person's life. It had always been in corporate, uh, in, in, in corporate law to do something else. How much that power can get through to people who are separated from others, separated by money, separated by the power system, etc., is really the challenge of society. Once you connect to your fellow human being, it's hard to really, it's hard to ignore them. It's hard to ignore their problems. It's hard to uh, to disregard proposed laws that can help people. It's hard to dis- disregard programs that are going to help people. But if you're not in contact with people, and it's easier. So truly the challenge for society is to have a, a sense of connection. And this, they call it social unity in sociology. The, the greater the social unity in a nation, the stronger the nation is. And so you see some nations which have no so very little connection. Those, those are where you see one tribe or one group of people who want to kill another people. There, therefore, the, the sense of connection is very low. Then you have other countries, the newly independent countries, where everybody's dancing with each other and they're going out into the fields and cutting sugar cane and people are uh, 
giving up their regular jobs to become uh, literacy volunteers. It often doesn't last too long. But you have extremes where you have some countries where the social unity is incredibly strong, so much incredibly weak. For, for the United States, which is a mature country, the question is to what degree can we spread helping, connecting? And you know, it's, it's a good example is that our new President Obama, one of the things he's been pushing is, in fact, the sense of connection to volunteering. We'll see what happens. But he's very much on target in the extent that the, when you feel unity, you're willing to sacrifice, you're willing to accept laws, you're willing to accept new programs, which may take away something else from you or which may favor other groups a little bit more than your group. But for the common good, it's, it makes sense. If you don't have that sense of connection, then, in fact, you're going to oppose those laws. So it's a test for it's a giant test for society, the degree that people feel a connectedness to those around them. I really agree with everything you said there, and I do think that it is a spiritual issue, this central problem of society, and I don't know the answer on how to get those people who have that disconnect and that lack of a spiritual center to enter the many beauties of living in deep contact with other human beings, no matter what their social circumstances are. I noticed that in a lot of the literature trying to urge people to experience helping others, the sense of connection and the health benefits, that people are often appealed to to take these steps by emphasizing the benefits to them, sort of the enlightened self-interest, the benevolent self-preservation involved. But, you know, it quickly does change the minds, I think, of people doing this work from what's in it for me to that that spiritual realization that's, I think, at the heart of this. Do you feel you can talk about what that real spiritual realization or that dimension is to see if that could be an attractor rather than another thing that's going to make people feel good? Yeah, but people only help others, my experience, if in fact it makes them feel good. They get involved for many, many reasons. They, they uh, for some reason, where they were brought up or some recent book they read, whatever it might be, they want to help someone else. They won't keep at it. No, no, that makes, it makes sense. Unless doing it makes them feel good. And they shouldn't keep at it if it's going to increase their stress, it's going to make them feel worse. So you, so, People do it to feel good. They may, so they may start off by saying, here, it's going to help my health. But unless it gives them the good feeling, they won't keep at it. But they may start off and say, I want to help people who have a certain health problem because the health problem has been in my family. But again, um, if, they don't feel, if they don't feel good by doing it, they won't stay at it. What I try to explain to people is that most people i found, and in fact my research only found 1% of people, 1% of volunteers really didn't feel good about it. And these are people who were doing what they call have-through helping. They were helping uh, usually a relative who was ill, and they had to do it, and they didn't have many other family members to share this responsibility, so they felt a loss of a sense of control over life. Again, that's the definition of stress. You lose control. You feel more stress. So therefore, everyone really can be a, uh, a good helper and, and feel good about it. But different kinds of helping will appeal to different people. And in, in my book, I have with 
two women go to a, a senior center, really a nursing home, and they go into this room full of women in the nursing home, and they're in the bed. They hold their hands, and they talk with them. Each one has a different a woman. She's sitting beside her bed and read to them, talk to them, etc. And then the women leave. And one woman, when she goes out, says to the other, this is the worst experience I ever had. It was the place smelled. The, the woman I was helping smelled. I never want to go back. It was terrible. And the other one said, I never felt so good. I felt beautiful. I really just held a heart. Holding this weak woman made me feel so good. We all perceive individuals differently. You and I can meet someone and you'll say, that's the worst person. I'll say, it's the best person or vice versa. So I try to explain to people who want to help, go into a situation to enjoy the health benefits. All we know is that you have to have personal contact with the person you're helping. You have to do it on a regular basis. If, in fact, you don't feel good, if for some reason it just means that that's not the right kind of helping for you. It doesn't mean you're a bad helper. It just means that for some reason that's not the best kind of helping for you. And therefore go to another organization or go back to, if you're doing in a hospital, and ask them for a different kind of volunteer situation. The 99% of people who will keep at it, that personal contact helping, will get the feedback of good feelings of, of hugs and handshakes and thanks. They will stay at it. You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and we're talking today with author and altruistic leader, Alan Lux. I'm going to make a suggestion here. I want to see how you respond to this, because I think what I was getting at is if ministering to others releases us, relaxes us, and puts us more at ease, which, of course, has all these health benefits, if that doesn't have to do with it puts us more in contact with a basic truth underlying our lives, which is that we really are all one. And that when you're living in disharmony with that truth, there is all this denial and layers of distress in your whole being. And when you come in alignment with that simple basic truth, things start to simplify on the inside and stresses are relieved. What do you think of that view? I agree with you 100%. That that is it. That is the harmony of life. Well, you said it beautifully. It is the harmony of life to feel our, our sense of connection with others, to walk out of our homes in the morning into a city crowded with strangers in the sense that we feel connected to them produces a harmony within ourselves, or if we have a sense of disconnection, of weariness to them, produces a disharmony, produces distress in ourselves. Look, the way you described it is very true. So getting to that truth and that beauty and that sense of ease with life is this spiritual issue, and I'm just wondering if somehow on a more societal conscious level, Increasing people's capacity to see that outside of any specific religious context, but just that ability to perceive and live in that state of oneness with all life, if that could be somehow encouraged more. I don't see really enough of that in the mainstream. That's where we need to put a lot more attention. Again, you're right. To what degree... Can we, as a society, encourage an increasing closeness between people? A. B. It becomes harder to do that closeness 
when when the society itself is under stress, like now, people have lost jobs or are afraid of losing jobs, and they don't automatically start to think of how I can help someone else when I myself am threatened. So how do you encourage a closest? Well, you have religion as one source. Most religious volunteers, at least in our country, tend to help primarily the religious organization that they're associated with. But it doesn't produce the social unity you really want of getting people of different backgrounds um, connecting. So what can society at large do? Again, I mentioned President Obama's trying, um, but it's difficult. You're making a, a general call, but you need on the community level to make it happen. Years ago, I did research, it's probably 10 years old now, for a publication called Spirituality and Health, and it was a national survey. The lack of time is the major reason people point to for not helping others. Um, but people who do get involved are pushed somehow, pushed by a relative, pushed by a boss, pushed somehow by society, uh, overwhelmingly say, I feel so good, I'll keep at it. So the question is, what, what can push us? And in the survey that I did, it said that, well, if they actually saw public officials uh, doing it, public officials would say they jog three, four times a week or they, they play golf uh, every weekend. What happens if once a week um, they took two hours out and they visited people who were uh, ill or different or needed help and they talked about how good they feel? So that was the research. I actually was working, but unsuccessfully, with uh, some people from the White House to try to get some national leaders at that time to start to help and talk about their weekly helping. But so you need, therefore, leadership. Well, the leadership is going to come from, from the religious sector, which is going to come from government, it's going to come from the community uh, sector, could come from the medical field if more and more physicians would talk to their patients who have stress and explain to them uh, how helping others is a way to reverse. It can come from the job. There are a large number of companies, compared to the overall number of businesses in America, it's small, but a large number of companies which do encourage their employees, including giving them time off, to go help others on the grounds that they'll have less stress and they'll become better employees. And we have to ratchet up this level of helping mm -hmm. in our country. And again, now is a very, very tough time for our country, and it's a good test because if, in fact, the stress isn't reduced quickly, if, in fact, uh, we have this tremendous, over 9% unemployment keeps growing, 4.5 million people have lost their jobs since this recession started, we more and more will blame each other. We'll blame other groups. We'll blame union members. We'll blame non-union members. We'll blame people who send their work out, out of the country or people who don't send their work out of the country or unsuccessful companies, successful companies, uh, people who are different than us for some reason. So you really need people to connect now, and the way we have to connect, people who are different will have to connect. One of the few ways we have is helping and volunteering. And so it, it needs to be encouraged. You must have seen it, Alan. There was an article in the New York Times on March 16th titled, From Ranks of Jobless, A Flood of Volunteers. And it seems like a lot of unemployed people have gone in to volunteer during this period of time. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. I mean, a lot of them are hoping to turn a volunteer position into a paying position at some point. But all the same, having that experience is going to be beneficial all around. I also wanted to say that our society is set up so much on competition and, and fighting 
the military and trying to get ahead, trying to get ahead of the next person. There's just not a lot of conversation in early life about loving one's neighbor unless it is in a religious context. And that's what I'd like to see change. I'd like to see this sort of ethical conversation become more of the mainstream focus of the nation. The famous study is of the um, rescuers, the people during World War II who rescued Jews, who were non-Jews who rescued Jews who put their lives at, uh, at stake in, in, in Germany and Eastern Europe. And the one thing they had in common was they were brought up in homes which taught uh, that, that all the world was connected. So it really wasn't religious, but they, they were brought up in homes which said we're all, we're, we are, we're connected, we're responsible for each other. So it can be taught, and that becomes critical. So therefore, probably the best teachers, beyond religion or community agencies or TV ads or whatever it might be, is in fact uh, family. What did we, we have that taught in the family and people will grow up with a sense I'm growing up not just responsible for my own family, but I'm growing up as an incredible society and I'm responsible for everybody else, but that's what will make me feel good. That becomes, I think, that, that's a big teacher of the, the, the family. Yes, uh, that, that gives us a good heart. What you said before about approaching public officials and other people who are in positions of leadership, even sports heroes, um, people that others look up to, I'm wondering if you have put together like a one-page proposal, a very concise document, because if you have that, I would really like to see that. And if you don't have it, I'd love to work on something like that with you. I think that our listeners and others would just really like to have something very brief that could be taken around to employers and just whoever we know to spread the word about the many benefits of helping. I do have the call for action in the form of this very long article in Spirituality and Health magazine, and I'll definitely get it to you, and I'd love to work with you on it. Great. Thank you. So a couple more things I'd like to touch on. Many of our listeners are artists and creative people who have deep insights and passions that they're moved to share with the world through their writings, their dances, their their visual arts, films, whatever. And you have written quite a number of books, and that involves a great deal of creativity. It also involves a lot of organization and personal discipline and intrinsic motivation. So writers and creative people often have a hard time with the practical aspects of getting their work out to the world, find unconventional ways of supporting themselves, takes many, many hours of work on these creative projects and trying to get the funding for them. So I wonder if you could just share with us how have you managed it on a practical level, the time, the energy, the money, and the motivation for getting your, your more speculative projects out? Well, I mean, first of all, <laughs> I never had to live on my royalties because I would have lived quite poorly. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know the number, but what is it? I'm, I'm making up this number, but it's, I think it's 5% of, it, of all writers are able to subsist on their royalties. So it, 
people who try to communicate whatever the creative means are have to do it because they believe that this creative strategy that they know for me it's in books can, can make an impact and by doing it they also it makes them feel good about this feeling of communication so I mean you have the great examples I guess would be well, I don't know, Winston Churchill, of course, who not only was the Prime Minister of, say, of England during World War II, but was an incredible writer. He, he was a, a paid writer before he became a Prime Minister. So the creative tools we have become important to communicate a message to people. People, you know, used to read much more than they do now, but if you think about the uh, 30s or the time of tremendous social unrest, throughout the world, especially in our country, with books, 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 made a tremendous difference in bringing ideas to society. And we have writers, of course, been going into the 50s and uh, after World War II, 50s and 60s, you have George Orwell, obviously, from Britain, and the whole idea of the, the fear of the super authority looking down on you, and he, and he writes uh, about Big Brother in 1984. You have uh, Arthur Kessler uh, with a similar worry, talking about darkness at noon. So you have so many writers. Then we have, jumping later on, you had Michael Harrington, who, who's writing The Other America, influenced John Kennedy to reduce the war in poverty. So for those people who want to change society, who have an ability to communicate it through some form of art, whether it be painting, sculpture, a film, poetry, novels, nonfiction, they have an advantage because it helps them communicate, not just to rely on others, the existing media, to communicate their ideas. Exactly. So on a practical level, though, I mean, you kept a full-time job. Did that mean that your nights, weekends, and vacation time were without movies and sporting events? In other words, did you have to be very single-minded? How did you manage to have such prominent and demanding paid positions and also write all these different books. Okay. You know, I've been, I've been a ball player, but um, I don't play golf. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't play cards. I think we all limit ourselves. And um, But, yes, you're right. At night, a couple of hours a night, it's all you really need. We're, we're human beings more than anything else, but you don't want to just lock yourself up and write. But, yeah, on, on the weekend... Saturday morning, three, four hours. You get, if you feel the message is important, then you do it. As long as you feel that importance, you, you don't, it doesn't become homework. It's something, hey, it's, it's enjoyable. And you write it knowing that uh, very often the good book or the good article you write will never even be accepted. But you just keep doing it and doing it because this is the sense of connection you feel to other human beings and to yourself. This is what makes you feel right. Alan, your most recent book is Since I Became a Terrorist Target. And in that very title, a direct and personal relationship to the global scene exists. And in conceiving of that book, what was your thought there and what's your current thinking on the individual citizen? Well, I wanted to do sort of a modern version of Plato's The Republic. The Republic, Plato writes a book about Socrates, 
And Socrates is, it's just all dialogue, and Socrates is wandering around ancient Greece, meeting groups of people, and they bring up what is the right way to live? What is the right society? How do we really connect? What will make us a strong society? And everyone has different views, and in the Socratic dialogue, they talk and they argue, and they finally seem to come up with a different understanding in, any, in each of these uh, dialogues. So it was pushing it, but I felt because it's hard to get people to read anything. Who's going to read a book just uh, just of dialogue? But that's what I wanted to do. I felt that since uh, 9/11, since we became a terrorist target, we really had to look at ourselves. We always have to look at ourselves, but. Here we are, a group is saying, hey, we want to destroy your country, we want to destroy you. What are the ways that we can feel strong, strong among ourselves? Uh, not just in a military sense, of course that's important, but how do we feel strong among ourselves? Uh, if we're attacked, we have that unity, we have that ability to respond, uh, that social unity I talked about before. So that was the, that, that is the idea of that book, to take uh, Plato's Republic, but to make it a a modern version of Plato's Republic. And so in, in answering that question, what is the right way to live, I would presume that you're you're looking at the moral dimension of life as that way to yeah, and right. That's exactly right. And if you look at Plato's Republic, he has the famous quote in there, and I'm paraphrasing, to the degree that we, we feel each other as brothers, that's considered sexist today, but he meant brothers and sisters. To the degree that we feel ourselves our brothers, that's, that's our social unity. And the degree that we don't feel it, we don't have social unity, and it opens a way for us so many bad things to do that we haven't. When we feel ourselves connected as brothers, then we're willing to do so much, accept so many laws, write so many laws, and do so many things, and we can move ahead. I mean, the whole debate now about health insurance, should we insure people who have a pre-existing condition? It's insane. How can, how can we not, how can we tell people, because you're ill, the insurance company said, because you're ill, you know, we're not really going to insure you. To not want to say, well, we have to work out a way that we can find the premiums to, to ensure individuals have a pre-existing condition in group insurance. If we had that sense of unity, people would be embarrassed, embarrassed to even come up with an argument to say, my company doesn't insure people with pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that sense of empathy, or it's reduced in your country, then, in fact, you can have things like that. So every country needs, at all times, and we need it now, a boost, a boost to the uh, unity, Jerry, exactly what you were saying before, the empathy, the connectedness to make us strong as individuals and to make us strong as a country. Yes, yes, beautiful, Alan. So what's ahead for you? What are your activities going to be going forward, and what are your dreams? Uh, we keep dreaming, I guess, dreaming of a better life, of a better tomorrow. been trying to set up, or well, maybe a victim of the economy, uh, Fordham University graduate schools of uh, business and social service have asked me to set up a center for nonprofit leaders to, s to help train nonprofit leaders. And we'll see if the economy cooperates. We'll try to start that in the fall. If it doesn't cooperate, we'll uh, probably be doing something else. I'm still working at Big Brothers Big Sisters and helping to be their senior advisor and working on some other projects. Sounds beautiful. Hey, how about this Center for Nonprofit Leaders just sort of meeting on the lawn in Central Park? <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Let's just sort of bring the costs down and do it anyway. Right. Sounds great. Well, listen, it has been a tremendous pleasure to talk with you today, and I want to thank you so much 
for being part of the program. My pleasure, Sharon.